My name is Jared Cole. I'm the high school director here, and I have the incredible honor of sharing with you this morning. We are in a series on Mark, and we're looking now at Mark 9 through 16. And last week, we, we looked at Mark chapter 12. There were these four tests that Jesus faced, and they were intense. This was a period of time and when he was challenged greatly by the religious leaders who stood against him. But then he wants to take his disciples away, and, and so he gets away. And it reminded me um, of this book. Actually, there's not a whole lot of things that don't remind me of Lord of the Rings, so I get to use the Lord of the Rings. But in this case, it is incredibly appropriate. In the two towers, Theoden, king of Rohan, leads his people after they have been attacked by the orcs sent by Saruman. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, I need to hear something. I need, like, okay, All right, excellent. So Saruman sends his orcs to attack Rohan in a surprise attack. Theoden decides to take his people to the sanctuary of Helm's Deep. And this is a place where they have sought shelter and refuge many times in the past. So they go to Helm's Deep. It's never been taken. So they've always been able to go here. They've always been able to be safe. And they go and they prepare for this long siege, which they've experienced before. But they don't know yet when they first start going that they're going to face an army of 10,000 orcs, which is far more than they have ever faced in the past. And they hear this news that there's this 10,000 orcan army headed their way. And Theoden goes into the main hall and he straps on his armor. And if you've seen the movie, they did this part beautifully. Because Theoden, as he puts on his armor, he says, how did it come to this? And there's this moment. It's a break in the action. You see, things have been building up, and then all of a sudden, there's this pause. And in this moment, they make decisions and choices that will lead them for the rest of the story, that will guide their actions. And it ends up being a turning point in the story. Similarly, in Mark 13, we have this suspension in the action. Jesus had just faced off against the religious leaders, and then in chapter 14, he is going to face off again. And the tension will rise, and the climax will come. But in Mark 13, there's this suspension, and we get into it and start to ask, how did it come to this? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 13. We're going to start with verses 1 and 2. As he, Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look! What massive stones! What impressive buildings! And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. The fact is... This was an impressive building. This was Herod's temple that they were walking next to. The Jewish historian Josephus recorded that some of the stones were 37 feet long, 12 feet high, and 18 feet deep. So to give you just a measure of that scale, if you look toward the center, our row in the center here is about 30 feet long. 
The stone would have been that long or maybe possibly more. This is a single stone. It would have been 18 feet deep, which is four or five of the rows, and 12 feet high, which is the same height as this back black wall that we have from the bottom of it all the way up to the light bar at the top. And Josephus also recorded that in a six-day siege, people used a battering ram against one of these stones for six days, and it didn't leave a mark. This was a massive and dense stone, and there were many of them that made up the temple. Construction started in 18 BC. Herod wanted to get on the good side with the Jewish people. He was a tyrant. And he wanted to get on their good side, and so he proposed that they would rebuild the temple, which was very important to them. And even the people who hated Herod got on board with this and became excited. So he proposed something. They accepted it. They started construction in 18 BC, and the temple was under active construction for at least 45 years. It wasn't completed until 65 AD, but it was actively under construction for about 45 years. So I, I was really, I asked Josh this week, I asked him if the stage was going to be completed before today, and he said, unfortunately not. And I said, that's perfect. That's ideal, because the passage that we are studying, they're walking past this temple. It's not even finished yet. There's still work going on. I'm like, that's really cool. So is it going to be done before, like, 2065? Somewhere around there? He's like, yeah, we'll, we'll have it done because it needs to be. And we have a fantastic team here that takes care of all these things. And construction is a little faster now than it was in the first century. But this temple, this scope is so massive and so big. It was one of the seven wonders of the, of the ancient world. And it was far more than just a building to them. From their understanding, from what they grew up with, the temple was the place where God's presence dwelt. And so to them, it was much more than just a building. And Jesus' response is the last thing that they or we really would expect. This, I thought, was incredibly, the, Jesus' response was incredibly uh, powerful, and it was, it was kind of hard to understand, but I want to... I want to point this out, because this temple building, Jesus said, would be destroyed. If you were alive in the attacks of 9-11, what did you feel? What did you experience when you saw the buildings on fire? And then as they came down, that destruction that happened, for those of us who remember either watching it on the news or hearing about it on the radio, we remember where we were, what we were doing, because it was such a stark moment for all of us. It was somber. It was painful. And this was an absolutely a building of incredible ingenuity and American engineering. And they came down in minutes. The temple to them was far more than just a building. It's where God's presence was. It's what they looked forward to, what they heard stories about. The previous temple to this it stood for about 500 years before it fell into disrepair and decay. 
And so for them, this was a place that they had looked forward to their entire lives. And Jesus had just told his disciples that it was going to be torn down. So he says this first. They tell Jesus, look, what massive stones. Like, that's huge. Can you imagine this? And Jesus' response to me, I think, is, is fairly comical. He said, do you see these great buildings? Like they had not just pointed them out to Jesus. I'm a parent. I love my kids. And if I'm about to diminish something that they think is great, I don't normally draw their attention to it. I usually try to take their attention away from it because I want to emphasize what's most important. Jesus does the opposite. He points out the buildings and draws their attention to it. He says, do you see these? Do you really see these? And they're like, yeah, we just told you about them. And then he tells them, not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. You see, God is about to dramatically change everything. The temple which was once the place where his presence dwelt would be torn down. Those huge stones, not one would be left on another. But even before then, the curtain would be torn too. And instead of God dwelling inside of the sanctuary in this building, he would dwell through his Holy Spirit in his people. Jesus was changing things. God was changing things. For us, God now lives in every believer. And while the, the temple was magnificent, it wasn't eternal. So they continued walking back to the Mount of Olives, and I imagine that Jesus' disciples were deep in thought. You ever had that experience where you, you ask a question or you get an answer and then you go for a walk or you go for a drive and you don't turn on music or a podcast or anything, but instead you just think because you're wrestling with what was just told to you. I think that's what the disciples were experiencing at that point. David Wade of the pulpit team sent me a, a historical fiction account of what this may have been like for the disciples. And I found it so insightful and so good. I think it really sets the picture for what the disciples may have been wrestling with and what that walk looked like. I want to read it to you. They left the sanctuary and the city, had crossed Black Kidron, and were slowly climbing the Mount of Olives. A sudden turn in the road, and the sacred building was once more in full view. Just then, the western sun was pouring his golden beams on tops of marble cloisters and on the terraced courts and glittering on the golden spikes on the roof of the holy place. In the setting, even more than in the rising sun, must the vast proportions, the symmetry, and the sparkling sheen of this mass of snowy marble and gold have stood out gloriously. And across the Black Valley and up the slopes of all of it lay the dark shadows of those gigantic walls built of massive stones, some of them nearly 24 feet long. Even the rabbis, despite their hatred of Herod, grew enthusiastic. The dream that the very temple walls would have been covered with gold had not the variegated marble resembled the waves of the sea seemed more beauteous. It was probably as they now gazed on all this grandeur and strength that they broke the silence imposed on them by gloomy thoughts of the near desolateness of that house which the Lord had predicted. And so they reached their destination and the first four of Jesus' disciples, they approach him and they come to him and they ask for clarifying 
information. They want clarity in this situation, and they want to know when things will be happening. And so they come seeking clarification from Jesus. And they sit about 100 feet above the temple grounds on the Mount of Olives, and so you actually get to look down on it and see the city in its grandeur. So they come to Jesus, and they ask him, tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? This isn't unusual for them. This is something they would normally do because the disciples, they would see Jesus do something. They would hear a parable. And then when they were off by themselves in private, Jesus often would explain things to them and give them the why behind what he did. And so for them to come to Jesus makes total sense. But Jesus, so often, as he often does, he gets behind their question. And it's fascinating. But honestly, don't we do the same thing? If we see something we don't expect, don't we ask for clarifying information? There's nothing wrong with this question. It's a good question. They want to know more details. But Jesus gets behind their question, and he tells them not to be deceived. Now, I want you to keep in mind what their question was. Their question was, when are these things going to happen? And here's Jesus' answer. He told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. So Jesus tells them, don't be alarmed, but do be alert. There's a difference between the two. Don't freak out, but be alert, be aware. And the Greek word that Jesus uses for watch out is this word blepo, which is a really, really cool word. It literally means to watch out, to beware, to pay attention to. This is an a present active verb in the Greek. And so being a present verb means that this action is in present time and then continuing. This is not a one-time thing. Instead, this is something that goes on and on and on. And being active, he's saying that the subject is the agent of action. So Jesus is saying, this is something you need to do now and in the future. He's telling them to pay attention. And he warns them, about being deceived by either false prophets or messiahs and events because false prophets will come. And Jesus is telling him not to fall for them. Now, if I show you this picture, how many of you would think that this is actually Elvis? It's most definitely not. How do you know that? Because he's dead. It's that simple. Elvis is not alive. You see that, you know it's an impersonator. And they can be very entertaining or they can be terrible. If you want to see a comparison, check YouTube. You'll see them both. Jesus is telling his disciples there's going to be many impersonators, but do not fall for them because when he comes back, we'll know it. We won't have to wonder if it's really Jesus when he returns. He also tells them to beware, to be watchful for events. And the events that he lists are very common occurrences. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, things that have happened 
since that time and long before. These are not new, and they, they will not stop. But we do need to watch and pay attention. But what we don't need to do is think that just because one thing happened all of a sudden now, this is all, it's all going to fall in place or whatever. But instead, Jesus is actually drawing their attention to what they need to do. And there's something else we need to point out too, because this, last week we talked about the inclusio, how Mark would put something at the beginning and something at the end, and then they would be the same, and everything in between would be helping to fill in those details. So Mark 13, 23 and 22, Jesus says, for false messiahs and false prophets will arise, will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, and you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. So at the very beginning of this discussion, he says, watch out for false teachers. At the very end of this, he says, watch out for false teachers and false prophets. So how do we watch out for false teachers and false prophets? In our day and age, what do we need to watch for? For us, we have the scriptures, so we always go back to the authority of the scriptures. And so we look at, for certain things. Does the teaching of this person align with Scripture? Galatians 1.8. If their teaching doesn't line up with the scripture, scripture, don't listen to them. Don't give them any room. They should have no spiritual input on your life if their teaching goes against Scripture. Second, does this person exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, graciousness, self-control. If the person if they, they might even be saying the right things, but if their life does not exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, be really, really careful. We need to watch, pay attention to that. Does this person continually to strive to be like Jesus? He told his disciples, as we saw last week, watch out for those who always desire the seats of honor. They want everybody to recognize them. If you see people who just want to be popular, who just want to be liked, who just want to be famous, be very, very careful. Watch out for them and pay attention. And Jesus was also really, really honest about what his followers could expect. There's a reality to following Jesus. He said, but you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts. You will be flogged, which was a terrible Roman ordeal. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at the time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat what his followers are going to face. Rather, he tells them plainly what they can expect and what he is equipping them to be able to do. What Jesus says here reminds me of a, a British explorer. In 1900, Ernest Shackleton wanted to cross the Antarctic. He wanted to be the first one to cross the continent of the Antarctic, and so he needed some men to go on his ship with this. Anybody heard of Ernest Shackleton? Anybody familiar with him? Okay, good. So he needed some men. 
He needed people who were not afraid of this grand adventure. So he put an ad in a magazine. And though we don't have one that's been preserved from this newspaper, we do have what historians think is an accurate representation. So this is what he said in the paper. He said, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. At that point, how many of us are like, ooh, sign me up. I get no money. I'm in constant danger. I'm probably going to die. I'm in. Want to guess, or do you know how many people applied for his expedition? 5,000. 5,000 men showed up to be considered for this journey. And Shackleton took a number of them, I believe it was 24 of them, onto his ship, and they went down to the Antarctic, and they made it further than anyone had before. They didn't quite make it across, but they had an incredible adventure. They, they all survived miraculously. They were trapped and stuck, and they made this little dinghy and sailed across the ocean to the nearest continent to get help. Two years later, they showed back up in England, to the surprise of everyone, really. Jesus, he tells his followers, especially this group, they can expect something very similar. It is not easy. Because Jesus doesn't want his followers to be surprised by anything that's going to happen to them, and so he prepares them and tells them, here's what lies ahead of you. And here's the thing. If we know what the situation entails if we know what we're walking into, if we have chosen before that even comes, we are far more likely to actually do what we have chosen to do and to see it through and to be faithful. And so Jesus, he doesn't, he puts his cards all out on the table. He says, this is what you will endure. Because every follower of Jesus throughout history is an ambassador for the kingdom of heaven. God has chosen to make his appeal through his people, and he gave us the honor of sharing the gospel. The gospel must be preached to all nations. It changes hearts, minds, and lives. It's the good news of Jesus and his love for us. Paul accurately, like, just so clearly describes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So what do we need to do to be a believer? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Let's pause right there. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this message and for the gospel, and I thank you for your grace that is given to us. And Lord, I pray for each of us right now that we would know you, that we would put our faith and our trust in you. God, we cannot take care of our sin, but you have so graciously, lovingly 
compassionately, taking care of our sin for us. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here this morning who has never surrendered to you, that this would be that moment, that they would say, Jesus is Lord, that they would believe that you have been raised from the dead and that they would put their trust in you right now, not a moment longer. God, don't let them wait. If that's you, if anyone in here, you came in here not believing in Jesus, but God is speaking to your heart and you're hearing this and it's clear and you say yes to Jesus and you put your faith in him, will you please just raise your hand and look up at me? I want to celebrate with you. I want to rejoice with you. Okay. Father, I thank you for all that you have done and given and how much you love us. And I pray that we would watch out, that none of us would be led astray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue on. Uh, Matthew, or Mark, not Matthew, forgive me, Mark 13, Jesus is really, really clear with his disciples. And I just want to point this out quickly. When they arrest you, he doesn't say if. He's speaking to this group. He knows what's coming for them. He said, when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. And he promises that the Holy Spirit will empower them and give them the words to say. And I want to encourage you as well that we have the scriptures. Be in the word and study the word because when... When you face a moment where you are put before someone who is in authority, God will bring things to mind. It might be your boss. It might be a family member. It might be a, a politician. It might be anybody. Someone who has authority over you, do not fear, but instead trust that God will give you the words you need to say. Let's move on. This passage also has prophecy, and prophecy is both near and far. This is really, really interesting. Uh, this is called prophetic telescoping. So the prophecy is given, and a lot of times throughout Scripture, we see this pattern where prophecy is given, and then there is a near, time-wise, a near fulfillment, and then another fulfillment in the future. And this is really clear with this passage. Uh, Martin McDonald, another member of the pulpit team, he sent a link to a really helpful article that I thought was really insightful. It's from sermonindex.net. It says this, it has long been recognized that biblical prophecy is normally fulfilled not in a single event, but in a series of events which bring the original prophecy to its final consummation. In keeping with this prophetic fulfillment pattern, biblical prophecy normally unfolds in progressively fulfilling, a progressively fulfilling way. In the unfolding of redemptive history, the prophecy is seen to take on a more detailed significance pertaining not only to the near future of the prophet, but also many times including a more specific and exhaustive fulfillment in the eschatological future. So there's this near and the far. And Jesus speaks of the abomination of desolation in Mark 13, but he wasn't the first one who spoke of it. That was Daniel. Daniel actually mentioned it in Daniel 9.27, and then he goes on and explains it a little bit more in Daniel 11. He says, he, this is the king of the north, he, his forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They'll abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. There's a phrase 
With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will be strong and take action. So Daniel mentions this, and it was fulfilled later in 167 B.C., by the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, who profaned the temple when he broke in, and then he erected an altar to Zeus over the altar of Jehovah, and he sacrificed a pig on it. This is as, as insulting and desecrating as you could possibly get in the temple. And then he went on to destroy it, and it was desolate. Then the temple was rebuilt by Herod. And Jesus prophesies that it's going to happen again. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. So Jesus prophesied that the temple again would be Destroyed. There would be an abomination that caused desolation. Now, this prophecy had to have applied to the early followers of Jesus because the temple was still standing. And Jesus tells them to run. I don't believe that Jesus' command to run extends from a concern for their personal safety. Because if that were the case, he would have said, as soon as there is any threat to you, then run. But he hasn't done that. In fact, he's told them that they will be arrested, that they will stand before the authorities. In fact, he only tells them to run when the temple has been broached and been defiled. Their abandonment of the city testifies that they don't owe allegiance to temple Judaism and do not consider it to be the basis of their security. Being a martyr for the gospel is honorable. It's a powerful testimony. But being slaughtered for a building, even a temple, is a whole other matter. And Jesus tells them not to. And yet, even within this, there are still prophetical elements with, which have yet to occur. Jesus is going to come back. He said, he will come back in the clouds. In Acts, when he ascends and the disciples stand there looking at him, the angels appear and they're like, what are you doing hanging out down there? He's going to come back the same way that he left. When I was a kid, I always thought Jesus was going to come back to Seattle because the Bible said he's going to come down through the clouds and there were always clouds. So it just made sense to me. Jesus is going to come back here. I don't think that's actually the case because there are a few sunny days. But he is going to come back and everyone will know it. And so Jesus, he warns his disciples. He warns them about two things, about distraction and about apathy. On the one hand, he warns them not to be distracted and focus so much on certain things that are happening that they miss what God has given them to do. And on the other hand, he warns them, warns them not to be apathetic, to not care at all, to fall asleep at the doorway because the owner of the house is going to come back. So he warns them, and then he commands them to be alert. And he uses the fig tree as an example, which he does throughout the Gospels. He implores the disciples to apply the principles they've learned from this agricultural society and apply it to other areas of their life. We need to touch on a couple other things as we close. So Mark 13, 30. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things take place. 
What did Jesus mean when he said generation? There's a number of ways to understand it. Did he mean this generation as in this certain group of people? Like we would understand baby boomers, millennials, Gen X, Gen Y, all that stuff, that certain age group. Did he mean that? Or did he mean generation in terms of humanity, this generation of lives? I think this is another example of this near and far fulfillment. I think there are aspects of this prophecy that only make sense within the time leading up to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Specifically, Jesus mentions those in Judea and says to flee to the mountains. And he mentions the desecration of the temple. The temple has been destroyed. It cannot be desecrated because it's not standing. However, there are elements clearly that have not been fulfilled yet. Jesus hasn't come back in the clouds. We would know it. He hasn't done that. He has not come back with great glory and power. He came in humility the first time. He's coming back in glory the next time. Second, I think this is one of the most difficult verses to understand in the Bible. Jesus said, now concerning that day or the hour. Remember the disciples' first question at the very beginning? When is this going to happen? It takes until verse 32 for Jesus to actually get around to answering the question, and then his answer is, no one knows. That's awesome. No one knows the answer, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. What in the world does that mean? If we, we understand Jesus, clear biblical teaching, Jesus is fully God. He is fully man. He is equal with the Father, and yet he does not know. This is super confusing, but I have a couple of thoughts. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Philippians says that Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. So there's a certain limiting that Jesus voluntarily did. And in John 5.19, he replied, I tell you, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. Jesus did ministry according to the will of the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you go back to that verse and go, well, what does that mean that he doesn't know? Um, our annual theme this year is wonder. Wonder of the glory of God, not of majestic buildings, but of God. And I read something like this that Jesus does not know, and it causes me to wonder. I don't understand, and I'm not going to. I would like to think, and I would hope maybe, that someday when we all get to be with Jesus in heaven, we'll get to sit down over coffee because it's the blessed beverage, and we'll get to sit down with Jesus and drink a cup of coffee and ask questions. At the same time, I'm pretty sure that, one, it won't matter at that point because we'll be in awe. And two, I kind of fear that my questions, like, hey, Jesus, I was really wondering about this. I'd like to know. I'm kind of concerned that his answer to me would be like his answer to Job. Brace yourself. I have questions for you. Right, coffee's over. Okay, that was great. Good talk. The end of all things is near. What's the point? I think the point of this passage is 
Just like the first followers of Jesus, we need to be careful not to be deceived by false prophets or distracted by events. I got an email from Martin McDonald of the Pulpit Team last night, and I read through it. I'm like, man, that is so good. I'm just going to copy and paste it because everybody should read this. He said, in essence, Jesus is directing us to be mindful, to continue to do the work of the Lord so that when he returns, he will find us at work. Knowing what is to come should act to motivate us to be more focused and diligent, especially in telling others about Jesus. We are not to be alert to protect ourselves. It's not about personal safety, as in be alert, there's a wolf in the area. Rather, be alert and vigilant to be about disciple-making, since the time will soon come when that will no longer be possible. And in one of the commentaries that I consulted, the NIV application commentary, the author said this, busying oneself with calculations about dates is thus a fruitless exercise that can only distract from the mission that God has called the church to do, to preach the gospel. God does not require studious deciphering of international threats and natural disasters, but spiritual vigilance that makes one ready for Christ's return whenever he comes. We don't know when he'll come. We just know that he will. So in conclusion, I want to read this together because I think 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 really sums up what we can be about because the end of all things is near. Does that sound familiar? That term, the end of all things is near. So let's read this together. You read the underlined text and let's see what God would have us do facing the end of all things. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another. Since love covers a multitude of sins, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And God, I pray that you would equip us by your spirit to do the work that you have called us to do. I pray that you would help us to keep watch, to not be silent, to not be still, but that we would be active in your kingdom, that you would help us not to be distracted by anything, but that we would stay focused on the calling that you have given us. God, help us. We can't do it on our own. We need you. Please help us to do your will in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.